Our job, I said, or one of our jobs, I think, is to figure out what we're called to do and then do what we're called to do. So what are you called to do? She said. I'm called to articulate my confusion, I said. This is Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their true or mostly true stories of personal daring and talk about writing. I am your host, Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. And nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. Do you know Brad Listy? I didn't. Not until I was introduced to him by another podcaster writer, Jody J. Sperling, who I had stumbled across on Twitter a while back. I had Jody on a bonus episode of Daring to Tell about his podcast, TRBM, The Reluctant Book Marketer. Jody was the one who told me about Brad Listy. And what an introduction. Brad had talked with hundreds of writers about writing on his podcast called Other People, Other PPL is how he spells it, for well over a decade. There are not many podcasters who can claim that kind of longevity. How could I not have heard of him? I don't know. The older I get, the more I realize just how much I don't know. Anyway, Jody thought the Other People podcast might be right up my alley, and it was. And he was also the one who suggested that I should have Brad on Daring to Tell, since Brad also had a new book out, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Well, I went to look it up and discovered it was a novel. But his book is not a memoir, my rule-enforcing self replied to Jody. I talk with writers about memoir. Well, it's autofiction, Jody said. It's very much taken from his own life. Autofiction, I thought. What is this autofiction you speak of? Something else I had never heard of. Did I admit my naivete? Mm, I don't know. But I said I would check it out. Be Brief and Tell Them Everything came out in May of 2022, not all that long ago in book time, I think, and I loved it. It was brief, both in total length and in the stories told within it, and it felt like it touched on pretty much everything. Careers versus callings, friendships and fatherhood, love and loss so many of the toughest things we face in life and that faced him in his very much the stuff of memoir and that he put into this novel, this novel of autofiction. So my edification continues all the time, but only when I am willing to admit the things that I don't know as I continue to do in this greatly anticipated conversation with Brad Listy. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I try and tell myself don't gush, and I so I'll try not to gush too much, but I will just say I loved your book. I recognized 
so much of what I found on the page through it and through many pages. And um, so I just want to at least start off by saying that. And often I like to just start with finding out people's writing stories. So what was your earliest inclination to, to writing? Well, first of all, thank you. I appreciate it. And as far as earliest inclinations, I mean, I think you can go, I mean, you could go way back into my childhood. It was always something I gravitated towards. I had a special affection for rhyming poetry and Shel Silverstein and funny poetry in Mad Magazine mm-hmm. as a kid. I remember hiding certain books that I liked in the <laughs> library so that only I would know where they were shelved. Like I would hide them wow. out of, yeah, I was like, you know, very devious in that way. But there was, I think, some recognition by teachers when I was in elementary school that I liked this stuff. I remember there's some like local public access television channel that featured for some reason kids in elementary school reading from their favorite books. I remember doing that, mm-hmm. you know, so it was always sort of there. And I think too, I was very lost in some senses. I was always, I, I remain to this day, very open to people telling me who I am. <laughs> so when teachers told me that I was good at writing, I believed them. Mm. And I think if had they told me I was good at chemistry, I would have believed that too. <laughs> even though I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's funny you say that. I, I recognize that very much. I do feel like I have also like, what am I good at? What have I been good at? And what do I gravitate towards? And I'm not sure um, for me, it was writing early on, although I also loved writing and reading more. So I was a huge Judy Bloom fan from my early days. Um, it's funny. I think Mad Magazine, I think of it as a very boy thing. So it's like, ha, ha, ha. Well, <laughs> we're talking and Al Jaffe just died yesterday. He was 102. Oh. And he was the artist who did those mad fold-ins, yes. like where you folded the page in half. And oh. no, I was not a guy who read Mad Magazine past the age of eight or something. Right. You know, it, was, it was a very specific time in my childhood, but I remember it fondly. And I remember it being influential in the sense of making an impression on me at the level of like subversive comedy. Yeah. Yeah. I responded to that. And same with Shel Silverstein. There's a like, you know, I feel like Shel Silverstein is in a lot of ways subversive and is often a child's introduction to subversive humor. So, so. again, I I am like the least well-read person you'll probably ever talk to. So maybe you could tell me who he I know the name, but it's not exactly you said he's a poet. Well, it was like where the sidewalk ends. There's like a you know famous children's collection, okay. the, the Giving Tree, which okay. is no- notoriously harangued as being <laughs> like philosophically brutal for right, children. Right, but right, right. Where the sidewalk ends was it for me. Okay. I really loved that book. And then there's another one called like A Light in the Attic, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, so, but there was also a book called I remember ro- it was called Rolling Harvey Down the Hill. which if, I mean, I can barely remember it. It (laughs) might be politically incorrect at this point. I think it was about like rolling a very heavy child down a hill. I have no idea. You know, it was funny when I was a kid and that sort of stuff stuck to me. And I think I always prize humor. And so you were told you were also good at it too. And, you know, the writing part of it, that was what you got the external feedback from, you were saying? Yeah, 
yeah, I could do that sort of stuff. And I guess I just like to try. And teachers noticed that I was writing this stuff. And again, I was very ready for anybody yeah. to tell me that I was good at something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And as someone who certainly gravitates to memoir, one of the things I'm really interested in talking with you about is the difference between, not even the difference, maybe the similarity between memoir and fiction and writing and what's true and what isn't. So when I read Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, I kept saying, oh, this is a memoir. <laughs> it's And it's not. You call it a novel. Well, I'll call it a novel. But it seems that the character Brad in this book grew up in Wisconsin. And is that perhaps a similarity with you? Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I think these distinctions between memoir and fiction, especially autofiction, are very blurry. And the reason why I opted for fiction is simply because, as I've said many times on my podcast, my memory is terrible. Mm. And I'm not a diary keeper. Mm -hmm. I think, that, or at least under normal circumstances, I'm not a diary keeper. Uh, I'm not somebody who every day has his little journal out. And so I don't remember stuff. Yeah. And for the purposes of the book and for the experience that I was trying to deliver to the reader, I did sometimes make things up or amalgamate characters or do the things that novelists do. Right. And so that felt like the more honest category. Mm. But I'm working on a memoir right now. Oh. And you could easily call it a novel. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's just. Right, right. It's just like, you know, when it comes to people who work in an autobiographical vein, fictionally, there's always crossover and there's always this gray area. Right, right. And I started this podcast. Mm, there's a lot of reasons, I guess, but I mostly started it because I love hearing writers read their work. And the places where I've been able to hear that most frequently have been memoir. They'll read their own work. But as I've done it, and as I work on writing myself, a I'll call it a memoir right now, who knows? And, and you know what, I relate to having bad memory too, because I come to a lot of places where I go, well, I don't know what happened next and what's the story and where, how do I get from this point to that point and what does it mean? And I get quite dug in about, well, I can't make something up. <laughs> and so the ability to make something up, frankly, I really admire that on one hand. And I will also say there have been times as I've talked with different people who say, oh, well, that was part that I I wrote it because I'm a writer and it wasn't part of what actually happened. So it sort of surprised me and I was shocked in my very binary way of like, if you're writing a memoir, you can't write things up. I mean, make things up. Of course, we hear all the time about how people do. And I think that it basically comes down to what is true about what we're trying to say. So how did you meld those two? Or it sounds like they came together very naturally for you because you would sort of make stuff up in, in combination with telling about yourself. And for this book, 
at the very beginning, you say it started off as a novel and then a different novel and then a different novel after that. And then, you know, so you went through a lot of different iterations of it, which I think also is not uncommon for anyone trying to write anything. So I guess all of that to say, like, how how did you get to this or how did those two things combine? A- another one of my questions, I'm throwing too many things out at once, but like, what what is autofiction? I hadn't even, I hadn't necessarily heard that term until your book. And I, I get it. But anyways, I don't know if you want to talk about that as a genre or how you came to that. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, I've always been somebody who works from the inside out and who writes about his own life and experiences. That's just my natural inclination as a writer. Mm -hmm. And in this book, which deals with some difficult personal experiences and painful stuff, I tried really hard, as writers will often do, to write around it and away from it and to go in different directions, Mm -hmm. to avoid it. And that's kind of a fruitless endeavor I've found. And eventually I got to the point where I sort of surrendered to the material Mm -hmm. and I leaned in to the harder places. Yeah. And like big surprise, that's when the book started to work. Right. And then as far as, you know, opting to go with autofiction rather than to write memoir Again, it comes down to not having a great memory or a written record of everything and to just be working from working from whatever is in my memory is so inexact that it just felt more honest to call it autofiction, which is short for autobiographical fiction and which is a sometimes maligned genre, which I don't really understand because writers have been writing about their lives and sort of gently fictionalizing them for forever, for as long as there have been books, right? So right, right. I just think that it came down to an intuitive creative process for the most part for me, where I was in the text working on it and trying to consider the reader's experience and making choices that were in service of that, even if they ended up being choices that deviated from the nonfiction Hmm. a bit but there's not there's not much i mean there's not much deviation and right you know i don't know you could sit there and parse it page by page but it's mostly me in there and i don't make any intimations otherwise yeah so because it was called autofiction and i was reading it this way and i find myself going did this really happen did that really happen (laughs) it obviously reads very much like memoir and all the experiences felt very true. So you were you were saying about trying to keep in mind what the reader would be interested in as well. And I also feel that writing right up to the really hard thing and then going, well, I can't say that and how do I get around that and maybe you can't get around that. There's a sense of pushing forward into something where you go, okay, this is where I'd really like to stop, but I'm going to not stop. What was the other voice about the reader as you were going through this? Because I think sometimes we're told, don't worry about the reader. Yeah. I think that part of it is, as you said, slowing down where it hurts, (laughs) which is a little bit counterintuitive, but which is exactly what the reader often wants. When you get to those difficult places, that's where they want you to slow it down and to really take your time 
so that they can understand better and have the emotional experience and have those kind of darker corners of the human experience illumined. And then I think on the other side of it for me was to be writing from grief or trauma or these difficult human experiences. It's not enough to simply be candid on the page and to sort of divulge everything or spill it. You also have to be creating a narrative experience for the reader that does the things that good narratives do that, you know, there has to be good storytelling and there has to be sensitivity to when you do need to speed it up or when the, the text is dragging or you're overindulging in pathos. And it's a very fine line and a kind of balancing act that I'm trying to, I'm trying to do in pretty much everything that I write. And I think that everyone does, you know, you're mm -hmm. trying to serve the reader. Ultimately it's a method of communication writing a book is. And for me as well, I always want there to be some humor in my work mm -hmm. and for there to be these moments of darkness kind of juxtaposed against moments of lightness or comedy or dark comedy. Right. And so that's its own kind of balancing act because if you veer too far in the direction of pathos, then I think it can become either self-indulgent or intolerable as a reading experience. It just right, can be right. overwhelming. And if you get nervous about getting too dark and you start to tell goofy jokes, you can undermine moments of genuine emotional realness. And yeah. the reader can get frustrated by that too. So you have to be right. uh, kind of tuned in to both and to choose your moments wisely. That's, I think, something that happens mostly in the revision. Yeah. Well, there were certainly moments of that there. You do, you get into some very dark and serious places, but it's not a too dark or serious book, but still being ultimately serious. It's the other night I was lying awake thinking, what is this book about? <laughs> How would I describe this book in one sentence? And I was thinking it's about everything. It it is about everything. It's about life and it's about all the difficulties that we go through and how those moments happen and um and then we also just keep going. Hmm. And how to move forward with those and still um integrate them. I I think that it's really hard to to do that and that's one thing that I just felt with you as you were going through these experiences that you share with us. Well, I've struggled with that as well. I mean, what do you, what is this book about? Yeah. You know, that's an elemental question for any writer. And I think maybe one of the big places where I land is that it's about creation. It's mm. and maybe frustration uh, yeah. in the act of creation, like the creation of art, creation of family. Right. It's obviously about grief. It's about disability, fatherhood. Yeah. Loss. It's about yeah. the stuff of life. Love. I mean, it's about yeah. all these things. So I, was I think it, it covers a lot, like you say, of the big human experiences. But if I had to pick one, I'd say creation. Hmm. I can see that. I can see that. I think of how um, you grapple through it with the description of having to map your insides, as you call it, 
as a writer, as a person who writes. I think that is what we're trying to do. And that kind of goes back to that, like, wait, what am I good at? Who am I looking at here? What what am I doing? Yeah. And I, th- I think too, it's, you know, this book was written as an outgrowth primarily of my son being diagnosed with cerebral palsy, epilepsy. He's got hit with a lot of different um, yeah, health yeah. issues, you know, about six months after he was born was when we found out. And I was just talking to a friend of mine about this the other day, and she's dealing with her own set of challenges on this front and is also a writer. And mm-hmm. it's really, it's a big challenge as a creative person, a writerly person to go through something like that because what I found anyway is that in the aftermath of it, sitting down to write and trying to write about anything other than this thing that is always front of mind for you yeah. is farcical. And yet it's really the last thing you want to write about. <laughs> you know, it's so difficult and painful and scary and sad, like so deeply mm-hmm. sad. But also that it's like it's also imbued with joy in so many different ways. It's just all this stuff. And right. there it is. And I think we all have maybe it's at certain turns some version of that. But man, this is a big one. At least for me it is. And I think it would be for pretty much any parent. Right. And so it became this kind of conundrum day after day, week after week, month after month year after year. <laughs> mm-hmm. And eventually I just sort of gave into it, but not without a fight. Yeah. I try I tried my best to avoid it, but <laughs> to I could avoid it. <laughs> I guess that's the Well, so and thus 12 years, but that started before your son was born, but I absolutely felt similarly your son is at the core of this book. Right. Um and and parenthood but maybe to sort of get us into the reading part, it took you 12 years to write this. So when you started out, what was it before it ended up as this? I think it was the kidney book. I think that was maybe like chronologically in real life, the book that I was trying to write after my previous novel or my previous work Mm -hmm. of nonfiction that came out. And then there was screenplay stuff. I mean, not, and right. f- I didn't, I didn't frankly catalog all the different failed attempts, but right, in, right, right. in the early <laughs> section of my book, I'm cataloging yeah. failed attempts at the very book that the reader is reading. Like this thing right. used to be X, this thing used to be Y, you know, I'm kind of going through Right. and the kidney book, as it is called in Be Brief and Tell Them Everything right. was a novel about a man, a writer who is kind of on the rocks, he's struggling and he decides to try to sell one of his kidneys for like $300,000 mm-hmm. to, to a dying person in Israel. Right. And I, as the Brad in my novel uh, does as well, I flew to Israel for like a four day weekend <laughs> thinking I needed to do research, which is not a terrible impulse or like that, right. cr- but still like a, an extravagant thing to do, you know, to fly mm-hmm. halfway around the world for three nights and I needed to lay eyes on it. And of course, while I was there sort of fell out of love with the novel and just was like, what am I doing? I didn't have, I think it's actually a good idea 
when I tell people the premise, they're like, oh, that's interesting. But I couldn't find a personal line to it. And mm-hmm. I couldn't find a way to make it funny. And I just felt disconnected from it. I think it has to be, for me anyway, a personal thing. Right. Uh, there has to be real personal stakes for me in the writing of a book because the writing of a book is such an undertaking and requires so much energy and endurance that if there's not, like, as I say, like if there's not blood on the page, like my blood, mm-hmm. <laughs> then I, I don't know if I can sustain, I can't just be making something up for kicks and I kind of wish that I could. But that's not the kind of writer that I am. (laughs) Right. Well, and thus the fiction thing, because I recognize that very much. It's like, I can't make this up. I I relate to it has to you have to feel it. Like, what is the feel? And I can so, you know, imagine showing up in the moment when you like went to the hospital where you were going to be checking out and there's armed people at the door and you weren't even in Israel get in in Israel yeah yeah you were like what what is going on like this is not gonna work you sort of feel like so yeah you like I think I say in the novel I sort of felt like this kind of out-of-body experience when I was there where I was observing myself mm-hmm. like pretending I was like playing the character of a writer doing research right it was right. like there's just something farcical about it but I will say Israel is a lovely place. I wish I could have spent more time. I had a good time there. Glad I went. But yeah, And yeah. I should say, too, the fact that it worked its way into this novel is one of my greatest triumphs because now <laughs> I can, now I can look at I can, yeah, I can look at my wife and say, see, it, it <laughs> took 12 years, but it worked out. It got in there. <laughs> exactly. So before I have you read, maybe connect the dots between you writing in grade school and the early books and you went to school in Los Angeles is that right for screenwriting what like what how to take the next steps to professional writing ideations well I, actions. I I have a film degree from the University of Colorado at Boulder so oh okay Sorry, but yeah. even there I was fr- primarily focused on screenwriting that was I learned pretty quickly that I had zero interest in the machines and in the teamwork of filmmaking, mm. the group thing. Mm-hmm. I never enjoyed that. Yeah. There's too many people and too many working parts. And the place that I like to be was writing alone, you know, yeah. working on coming up with the story. But I think I was gravitating more towards literature even then, you know, about halfway through. I just didn't want to change horses midstream and extend my college. I was ready to be done. Right. So I took the film degree and then goofed around, was like, I should say flailed (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, as one does, you know, in those first couple of years after graduating, I did a little bit of traveling and then ended up getting into USC's master's program in creative writing and came out to Los Angeles and hid out for a couple of years and wrote what became my debut novel. And that was really what graduate school was for me, was a hideout. It's like a shelter. And it was a place to meet some other people who were doing this pretty much for the first time, meeting people and feeling like some comfort in that. But I didn't learn how to write there. Hmm. Uh, They don't teach you. You have to be, I think I benefited from already being a working writer when I showed up. I was already Mm -hmm. pretty disciplined about it. I just needed space. So I wrote my debut novel which, you know, ended up getting published and 
it feels like a lifetime ago because I was in my twenties, but I kind of got done what I wanted to get done when I was there. And, you know, I had a very antiquated view and understanding of what publishing and what the writing life was like. I think I was basing it on the lives of novelists in like the mid 20th century. <laughs> right. Right. And had very little understanding of what the actual experience was like in a contemporary sense, but I was, yes. I was quickly schooled. You learn quickly, you know, once you yeah. get into this, how much different the playing field is now. And, and it continues to be very fluid. I was going to say even very different now, I'm sure from 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. Yeah. No doubt. So, well, why don't we have you read? Okay. I don't think there's too much in here that needs explanation to jump into the middle, but I don't know if in this section we're going to hear from you're married, you have a wife, her name is Franny, and and you're a dad in this section. I think that pretty much will cover it. Yeah, I mean, I think this is also about frustration that the narrator feels with professional capitalistic pursuits, job frustrations, like day job frustrations, not, well, day job frustrations, and then of course the creative writerly frustrations. So it's kind of all that stuff, failure and success, then also loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of that stuff. So I'll just begin and hopefully people can follow along. I think so. More recently, there had been the ill-fated job I'd had producing documentary television for a company that must, for legal reasons, go unnamed. What I can safely say is that the project required me to fly across the country and spend a few days in the presence of a billionaire about whom we were making a flattering multi-episode profile. It was, to date, the first and only time in my life that I've ever had close proximity to a billionaire. What I remember most about him is not the man himself, a nice enough fellow, possessed of a bland affect, exhibiting exactly the kind of aloof self-assuredness and air of entitlement that one might expect from someone who hadn't pumped his own gas in 30 years. What struck me most instead was the coterie of assistants with whom he traveled at all times, a quartet of junior executives who functioned as his brain trust, a kind of elaborate human shield, tending to his every thought and need and quietly, ferociously, competing with one another for his favor. It was in the harsh dynamics of their subterranean combat that I felt the truth of the billionaire, the ways in which power and money have a tendency to make people nuts. The gravitational force of this one man's good fortune, bending everything it came into contact with, a winning lottery ticket in human form, so tantalizingly close, so impossibly far. All told, I spent about 12 hours in the billionaire's company over a span of three days, an amount of time the junior executives repeatedly informed me that no one ever gets. The billionaire's time was simply too valuable. He didn't need to do things like this. He didn't need to do anything except for what he wanted to do, obviously. The fact that he wanted to do this was extraordinary. Repeatedly, 
I assured them of how appreciative I was, trying not to let their exhortations mess with my head. In my role as lead producer, it was my responsibility to stay cool, be unbothered, keep the trains running on time, and never seem cowed by anything. I liaised with the billionaire in his dressing room, making sure he felt comfortable with the day's agenda, and then, when filming began, I sat behind the camera and conducted the interview, pitching him softball questions about his life and career, questions intended to elicit the kinds of responses that would lead to quality, inspiring television. His mother's love, his father's absence, the teachers who believed in him, the Ivy League scholarship, the influential mentor, the early career failures and moments of doubt, the eventual breakthrough, followed by the obligatory crash. The late 30s coronary scare, the remarkable comeback and incredible series of triumphs, a commercial for the greatness of the man. In this spirit, it should have been a relatively straightforward production, tracing the glittering contours of his Wikipedia profile. But what I didn't know, and could not possibly have known at the time, was that the billionaire harbored political ambitions, had grown restless in quasi-retirement, had secretly launched an exploratory committee, and was pondering a run for high office. Over the course of the three-day interview process, he repeatedly, out of nowhere, in the midst of my questioning, went off script, turning his gaze to the camera lens, delivering excerpts from a generic stump speech, jabbing his closed fist for emphasis like a seasoned pro. In the absence of any context, these non sequiturs made little sense to me, so much so that I wondered if it might be a sign of senility, some pitiful delusions of grandeur spilling forth. Over and over again, I gently reminded the billionaire to please redirect his focus, requests that he repeatedly ignored, as if he hadn't heard them at all. By the end of day one, it was clear that a hostile takeover was underway. The billionaire was now in charge of the production. Events would unfold on his terms, as events almost always did. Back in Los Angeles, company executives were, to put it mildly, displeased. As confused as I was by the billionaire's behavior, his fixation on politics, his need to wax rhapsodic about the spirit of the American people and the promise of a better future. Most of all, though, they were upset with me for failing to bring him to heel and get the production back on track. I made efforts to explain how hard I had tried, how insane the exchanges had been, how I had even approached the quartet of junior executives during a bathroom break, pulling them into Video Village and pleading for some assistance. But, of course, no such assistance was forthcoming. Their only allegiance was to their king. In the end, I was able to cut the show together, albeit a considerably shorter version than the one that we had planned. Six long weeks were spent on site in an edit bay, sweating over every frame, enduring the quiet judgment, the gossip and consternation among my peers. When post-production wrapped shortly before Christmas, I said my goodbyes and exited the premises, aware that I would never be asked to work for the company again. 
I felt both ashamed of the failure and relieved to be free of the insanity. All throughout that holiday season, I slept like a bear. During daytime hours, I was both moody and rejuvenated, restless in my uncertainty about what would come next, and excited in some vague way about the possibilities. At the turn of the new year, I fell into the customary planning mode, giving thought to goals and priorities and how to build a viable future. In my notebook, I wrote the following. I want to be one of those gentle, wise fathers who never raises his voice or has an unkind word to say, who is almost always in control, a stellar breadwinner, calm and good-natured, with free time to spare, loose and relaxed, fun, funny, uninhibited, both subversive and profitable, a man who books impromptu vacations and plans camping adventures and knows how to use power tools and participates willingly in school functions and is the envy of the other mothers. But instead, here I am in my garage, contending with my inner life, Brad the sad dad, man of soft and complicated beliefs, the living embodiment of a collective mood? The aforementioned passage was scribbled at my desk in the garage, the place where I now spent the majority of my time, and where, during the first six weeks of that year, I wrote a very mediocre screenplay, hammering it out in a panicky rush. The soul-sucking humorlessness of the billionaire project had left its mark on me, and in response, I decided to be silly and attempted alchemy. Working on a regular schedule, I cranked out at least five pages a day, a copy of Save the Cat dog-eared on my desk. What I ended up with was an absurd comedy called Man of Letters. It's like a sports comedy, I told Franny, but the sport is spoken word poetry. A look of expectation on her face, as if she were waiting for the punchline. In the fantastical world of the film, Spoken word poetry is a major spectator sport, highly competitive, on par with, say, professional basketball. Our hero is a heartbroken 40-year-old poet who lives with his parents in a bland suburban hell. Picture Will Ferrell with a wild head of hair and a massive hermit's beard. A Salinger-esque figure who was once a great champion, but then vanished without a trace, retreating into obscurity to tend his psychic wounds. As the movie unfolds, he emerges from reclusion and begins to live again, slowly re-entering the realm of competition, eventually defeating his longtime arch-rival for the championship. Along the way, he falls in love with a registered nurse. I've lived my life, he says in the climactic poetry competition, up here on stage pacing like a panther and articulating rage, working like a demon for a paltry living wage, rattling the bars of this unholy cosmic cage. My literary agent, in an act of compassion, helped me find a film agent to shop the project around, a British guy about my age based in Santa Monica. He used the word bespoke too much. We met only once in person. That was plenty. 
The rest happened over the phone. A fairly rapid rejection process, embarrassing for all parties. The script, the Brit assured me, had made it all the way into the hands of Will Farrell's longtime manager, who, while charmed by my ability to write poetry, ultimately found the project too quirky to pursue, a sentiment that was echoed by pretty much everyone who read it, assuming they even did. In the aftermath of this small debacle, I quickly fell back into production work, scrounging up a pair of small jobs in rapid succession, including, for the first time, an audio production job, which I lied my way into by claiming that I knew how to use Pro Tools. That I was able to fake my way through the project was the principal source of my self-esteem that spring, teaching myself the software basics and quick turnaround, hustling, watching YouTube tutorials, sourcing all necessary gear, setting up a little studio in a corner of the garage, complete with a mixing board and a pair of microphones. The project itself was of little interest, educational content for a real estate concern, all about how to flip homes. The drabness of the subject matter notwithstanding, there was something energizing about the feat, the thrill of a scam successfully executed, and along with it a bit of uneasiness born of disorientation. The good with the bad, the highs and the lows. The summit of Mount Everest had once been the seafloor. It was toward the end of this project, early on a Monday morning, that I sat down at my desk to work and heard my phone ring. Not even 8 a.m. Unusual. My father, on the other end of the line, calling with the devastating news that my buddy Pete had died. One of my oldest and dearest friends from childhood, as close to a brother as I would ever have in this world. The news had gotten to my parents first via Facebook, and my dad was calling to let me know. The conversation lasted all of a minute, my old man lowering the boom in his just-the-facts manner. Found dead this morning, at a bachelor party in Key West. Died in his sleep. A friend discovered his body. Unclear on cause at this point. Still waiting for word. I'm so terribly sorry to have to tell you this, son. There wasn't much else to say. I was so shocked I could barely respond. I hung up and stood there for a long moment, blinking, then went inside and explained to Franny what had happened, blurting it out in a single, painful line. My buddy Pete just died. She jumped up from her chair, her cheeks suddenly flushed, and gave me a hug. After relaying what little I knew, I walked into the bathroom and looked at myself in the mirror and put a fist to my face, bursting into tears, working to hold them in as if there were an animal trying to escape from my chest. Weird tears in retrospect. An explosion of emotion, yes, but also a performance of grief. I didn't know what else to do. My buddy Pete had died. This is what happens, I kept telling myself, all throughout that morning, as if I had struck upon a revelation. This is normal. People die. People die every day. This is tragic, but people die every day. There were calls to make, 
reaching out to old friends, breaking the awful news, commiserating, the terrible shock of it all, coordinating travel plans. I booked a flight to Boston for the coming Thursday, then decided to go for a hike and burn off some energy and get some air, be in contact with nature, try to clear my head. I left the house and walked up to Griffith Park where, while making my ascent, I noticed a large blackbird with a sizable wingspan circling in the skies above. In the fog of my grief, I invested it with a kind of mystical symbology, convinced that the bird was a manifestation of Pete, that this was Pete saying goodbye, transitioning to the next realm, reincarnated instantly, and so on. It's a hawk, I told myself, a beautiful, soaring, solitary hawk. But then, on my flight to Boston that Thursday, sitting in a middle seat at the back of the aircraft, it occurred to me that it might have been a vulture. Three days later, upon returning home from the funeral, I found myself in a state of considerable softness. That punch-drunk feeling you get from deep grief, dizzying and clarifying all at once. The cause of death, almost certainly, was an accidental opiate overdose. The news had been relayed throughout the weekend, in quiet corners, in hushed tones, in weepy little semicircles of mourners. Some hidden pill bottles had been found among Pete's belongings at home, just as one was discovered in his dop kit in Key West. An autopsy had been performed, toxicology results pending. The basic facts seemed clear enough. Pete, away at a bachelor party, had called his wife and daughters to tell them goodnight, nodded off in bed, and was found there dead by a friend the following morning. Just a sickening tragedy. His widow, Meredith, a Boston native, so utterly devastated. She hadn't seen it coming at all. If there was anything positive about the experience, it was the fact that the long weekend had amounted to a high school reunion of sorts. Some of my closest friends and I gathered together for the first time in ages. We had all grown up in suburban Milwaukee, and in the decades since, almost everyone had fled, scattering across the country, building families, chasing dollars. To have everyone in the same room was a rare occurrence. It felt good. The easy familiarity and irreplaceable shorthand. We drank ourselves silly in the hotel bar and told old stories and blamed ourselves for not keeping in better touch, for not reaching out to Pete enough, for getting too distracted by the bullshit, for not knowing what the hell was actually going on with anyone. There were drunken vows to get together on an annual basis going forward, ski trips and beach vacations and so on. Vows that would never be kept. We were determined, we told ourselves, to get our priorities in order. All of it amounted, I think, to a collective expression of shame and an admission of how alienating modern life could be. The wicked loneliness that so often characterized adulthood the majority of social exchanges relegated to the digital realm, the avalanche of responsibilities bearing down, financial, parental, and otherwise, taxing vital energies, making friendships hard to maintain, especially those carried out over distances. 
in lieu of an actual conversation, you might fave an Instagram post or send a photo via text. How easy it was to trick yourself into thinking you were actually keeping in touch with people when all you were really doing was scratching the surface. And then, before you knew it, they were gone. It was just a few weeks after the funeral that I launched, on a whim, the Other People podcast. Late summer 2011. A direct expression of my grief and shame and the resulting experimental mood. The basic concept was simple. In-depth conversations with other people, other writers. No rote journalistic approach or stacked list of questions. We would just talk and see what happened personal and off the cuff, in keeping with the tenets of podcasting. No high-minded literary discussions or synopsizing of a book. Nothing too polished or produced or removed from the messiness of the real. My first guest was Jonathan Evison, an old writer friend from Seattle. We had known one another for years and had published our first novels at around the same time. I talked with him over Skype and recorded it with my new gear, He was in his RV, which he used as a roving office. You're sequestered in your mobile home, I said. Yeah, he said. Are we rolling or something? Yeah, I've got Jonathan Evison on the line. Let me put some pants on, he said. At the time, I had no idea that I was embarking on a project that would carry me through a decade and beyond. I think I figured I would conduct the experiment, make a couple dozen shows, get it out of my system, and move on to something else. But right away, the exchanges felt good. Medicinal, even. And what feedback I received was all positive. There was something undeniably energizing about it, something natural and fun, a kind of necessary corrective to the general trend, the wonderful mess of an uncut conversation versus a sculpted, pithy tweet. Hosting the show came pretty easily to me, but the truth is that it's an easy thing to do. Nothing complicated. Just sit there and pay attention. Try to serve as a surrogate for the audience at home. Have a little courage and accept the risk of boredom. Certainly, it was easier than writing a book, which was part of the appeal. It felt like an act of service, a kind of community-building exercise a reaching out to the weary hordes of literary geeks on the periphery. In the beginning, I didn't spend too much time analyzing it. I just went with my instincts and followed what felt good. In the decades since, over hundreds of episodes, there have been many small moments in which my guest and I have connected at an unusual level of depth, moments in which a deep forgetting seems to take place, a narrowing of attention and the removal of the usual divides. The static recedes, and what remains feels essential and true, a kind of mercy. It could be a funny story. It could be the revelation of tragedy or the sharing of a terrible humiliation. It could be just about anything. The only critical ingredient is transparency, the willingness to face things openly in the company of another person. On a functional level, it can feel like an active demonstration of what it means to be human. When this happens, things get effortless and affirming in a hurry, occasionally even transcendent. 
the basic deep relief of truly communicating with another human being, giving the mind its proper exercise, and silencing the voice in my head. Along with writing, podcasting is the only thing I've ever done in my professional life that feels like any kind of fit. That both are esoteric outsider pursuits is not at all lost on me. My other various day jobs, each of which has carried within it some vague notion of respectability and conventional prosperity, have always felt like a kind of play acting, the scramble for survival and the trying on of various selves. Yes, there have been some successes here and there, a certain kind of admirable industriousness at work. But generally, these pursuits have felt devoid of any deeper meaning. The game, I've always told myself, is to somehow get back to the writing. It can be easy to worry that I've spread myself too thin, wandering down paths that have nothing at all to do with who I'm actually supposed to become. The unlived life of a parent, I once told Franny, can have enormous psychological impacts on a child. I read about it online. We think we're keeping secrets from them? They know everything. We're screwed, she said. Our job, I said, or one of our jobs, I think, is to figure out what we're called to do and then do what we're called to do. So what are you called to do, she said. I'm called to articulate my confusion, I said. From one of my notebooks. I feel like if we're poor, but I leave behind a stack of books, the kids will be proud of me, despite their suffering. They'll know that I suffered too, but will hopefully find solace in the idea that at least I had some place to put it all. He suffered richly, they might say. Or, if we're fabulously wealthy and I leave behind a stack of bestsellers, they'll consider me a tremendous success and a man in full. They might even resent me for it. Or, if we're rich because I work some awful job that I hate, they'll be proud of me for my selflessness. He sacrificed his dreams so that we might realize our own. But, if we're poor and I spend my life working a series of miserable jobs that I hate? In that case, they'll stand over my grave one day and say things like, the old man was a tragic figure who wasted his one precious life on stupid bullshit. Thank you. Sure. That was a mouthful. <laughs> it was. And... Uh, um... There is just so much there, sort of reacting to that immediate last part. You're going through things that have to do with making a living, trying to fulfill your life in a way that feels good and makes sense and is something that works for you. And then on top of it, there's this constant self-reflection playback of what does it mean for my kids too in trying to like set this example for them and what are they going to think and they know everything about it. Um, I feel like it really reflects who we are in this world right now at this time. And as someone who, frankly, does not have kids, I, f I felt it anyways. I mean, it's a relationship between a parent and a 
child to say who who are these people, what were they doing, how are they trying to be the best they could be. That's kind of my reaction to the life-lived part of what you were writing. In addition, a lot of what you write about makes me wonder, uh, made me wonder about desires and ambitions and what we do and what we're called to do and how we do what we do. And the documentary about the billionaire, whoo, in my production world, I never did anything like close to that magnitude, but there were jobs that you're called to do and you're supposed to interview this person and make them sound good for something that it has to go on the air and they're there with their entourage and everyone has an opinion about, you know, so like I very much related to that, but that was a super heightened atmosphere. And obviously it's got a lot of intrigue about the anonymous person, (laughs) (laughs) which say no more. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I were at liberty to say, <laughs> but it's based on, based on some real life experiences and, mm-hmm. you know, it's difficult to navigate the tensions, especially as a creative person between life responsibilities, breadwinning, and doing something with your time that has meaning and that adheres to your deepest values and is synchronous with what you're actually good at and interested in. Right. And so, I mean, I talk to creative people all the time and I know the struggle that pretty much everybody is in with rare exceptions, you know, people who are living hand to mouth, people who are in their fifties and sixties living in 500 square foot studio apartments, you know, worried about where they're going to end up when they're elderly. (laughs) I mean, you know, I, I sort of, I have a lot of friends, for example, who work in real estate development for whatever reason, I have like 50 friends who are in real estate development or have been at some point. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I wish they could get to know writers. (laughs) I'm like, do you realize, or just artists like who are outside Mm -hmm. of Maybe like the Hollywood paradigm where there is real money to be made, though in increasingly less, you know, but right. still, uh, you know, in the writerly scheme of things, that's where you, if you want to make money, that's what you do, which is why it's so hotly contested and mm-hmm. which is why like Ivy League kids like, you know, come to Hollywood. Right, right. <laughs> they, they know where the money is. And, yeah. Uh, so I just think that like, these are not easy questions to answer, you know, and that's part of what I'm trying to address through this character through this approximated self on the page is, you know, what's the responsible thing to do? I mean, on the one hand you sacrifice and you do what must be done, but on the other hand, what kind of example are you setting for your children? Mm-hmm. If you just snuff out your own dreams and take the easy route or don't have the courage to really pursue what you want to pursue, like what, how does that affect them? It feels like that'll mess them up too, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So I guess money is a salve. I mean, if you're filthy rich somehow and your kids get to, you know, go away to summer camp in Europe and stuff, they might be like, this is fantastic. (laughs) Dad's a real estate developer, but I don't know. That works both ways. I've seen that turn out, you know, poorly as well. So yes, not easy, no easy answers. No, no, definitely not. But the grappling with it all is so real. And so a couple of things I'm thinking about, one about sort of structure of what happens on the page. But I think before that, I first, quote unquote, 
read your book, but I, I listened to your book first and then I read your book afterwards. And these are two very different experiences of consuming things that I am continually weighing. And I think that as I talk with you and hear about what's important for you to come out of what you're presenting for a reader slash listener, I feel like the humor part of it is so much more alive through the voice, yet there's other things that the grief is so much um, more able to be absorbed through the written word. And so it's just an interesting thing because I loved both experiences for different reasons. And did you love reading your own audiobook? Like, what's the talking part of it that is special? Well, I mean, I think when it comes to humor, so much of humor is timing and delivery, you know, especially dry humor. So it might come across more clearly when it's spoken. I was happy to be the voice of my audiobook. I, as a listener, prefer it whenever possible for the author of the text to be the reader of the audiobook, though I will concede that in some cases the author should not do it. Not everybody's, you know, got the got the voice for it or whatever it is. They don't enjoy doing that, but I, uh, I'm on a microphone all the time. So it just seemed like a natural thing to do. And it's such a personal story and it's voiced in the first person that it made a lot of sense. And exactly. so I think there's probably something intimate about that, that comes through when you're listening to it. And then there are, like you say, other aspects of the novel, maybe moments where I'm expressing something about grief that are better experienced alone, holding a book in a mm -hmm. coffee shop or in you know, your living room or wherever it is, you know, where you get to sort of meditate with it as opposed to have it told to you, or you can reread it or linger on it and all that kind of stuff. I think that's easier to do with a yeah. with a text than it is to do when you're listening to an audiobook. Exactly. And I find myself, especially when I'm more absorbed in something, reading slower and slower. And I do often take the time to put it down, walk, even walk around my house for two minutes or go do something or fold the laundry and come back, like in order to let it absorb in. So I'm sure I'm a rare creature. Not everybody's going to want to both read and listen to everything, but I find myself agreeing with you wholeheartedly. I love it when authors read their own work. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Like, it's not necessarily for everybody. And it is an endurance to do, as you well know. But the intimacy is like, there's nothing else like it. The voice is just, it's where it's at, as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah. So. I mean, I think people, the person who wrote it is probably the most qualified if you were going to graded out to be the reader, but mm -hmm. some of it's performative and you have to, like you say, you have to be willing to sit there for 12 hours or whatever in an audio studio in a booth, going over it and over it, repeating yourself, right. <laughs> checking yes. pronunciations, like all the yeah. stuff that goes into it. But I was exactly. familiar with that just from being, you know, a podcaster. So it was, it was old hat. Right. Right. Is it your style to write in these short little snippets because that was the other thing that wasn't exactly clear to me as I was listening. I mean, you move from scene to scene, story to story, but in the book you have a little dot between and your your chapters aren't numbered. It's just very 
straightforward in that pain part I think that we were talking about before you you stay with it in many many places but the breaks allow you to walk right up to the edge of something very painful or powerful and then move on and I think that having the short chunks propels the reading forward too so I'm just wondering how that came to be yeah I think I mean I never made a decision that this was something that I was going to do but if I reflect on the work that I've done it has tended to be fragmentary or to work in these kind of shorter bursts though some of them can be several pages long it just sort of depends you know on on what I'm up to but I ultimately am just trying to mimic on the page what I enjoy most as a reader and I'm trying to have a heightened sensitivity to the reader's possible boredom. I don't want to bore anybody. I don't want to overdo it where it doesn't need to be overdone. And I love when a reading experience feels effortless and there's a real velocity to it. Mm. That's what I want. But I also don't want it to be in any way disorienting, which can sometimes be the case when you're jumping around in time or jumping around from storyline to storyline. So there is, I think, a responsibility that the author has to bear to make sure that the reader is never lost in time or space. And hopefully that's the case with this book. It was something I worked on and it's really just that. I think it's, it's so, it's kind of hard to talk about it in an explicit way because so much of it is intuitive and right. I'm just, you know, this book was definitely the, the best creative experience of my life. Like when I finally got to this draft, it really came together in a period of months where I sat down, I obviously had a lot of the foundation laid. There are some sections that I had written years ago, mm -hmm. but working through this draft happened over a period of months. I was working every day pretty much on a really disciplined schedule and it wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. The writing was grueling as it always yeah. is, but it just, it, as it was emerging, I knew that I finally had it as best as I could have it. I felt satisfied and it was, that was new. I had not previously felt that level of clarity and satisfaction. And so, you know, this is just how it came out. And I sort of intuited when to jump from one thing to the next. It just felt right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. Often the no, it has a feel. Yeah, it often that's often the answer, you know, to these yeah. questions. Like writers don't even fully know, you know. I think it's just <laughs> this is how it eventually emerged, and I just knew kind of intuitively that it was it was right, and and hopefully it is. I'm sure it won't be for everyone, you know. There's some people who will read it and think it's too uh, too fragmentary, but. I haven't heard that. Yeah, yeah. No, I I love it. The um sorry, this is why I'm a producer at heart. <laughs> so I do a lot of You talk about how being a host is natural and uh <laughs> that's the part I have really worked to struggle. I've 
struggled with. I am trying. <laughs> You're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> Thank I think it, you. What matters most is simply that it's authentic, you know, and like people have to feel like there's a human being on the other end of the line as opposed to just a robot asking questions. You know? Yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I am nothing if I am not authentic. <laughs> I am quite aware of that. But I mean, I guess the, the question about hosting or like sort of commenting on all these things it is like what what are we good at and what can we do and um and you clearly are you know that part came very naturally to you to have conversations with people and and i loved in how this section that you read it leads to what you've done which is have these conversations with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of writers which is just Congratulations. What a huge accomplishment. I guess my podcasty question is while you're working on this, how did the podcast overlap work with your writing? I mean, it's got to have influenced you in a way with all these writers that you talk about as you were working on the book. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't even begin to quantify how much I've learned from the conversations. It's yeah. it's a lot though, and inevitably stuff that I've learned has found its way into my work. And every time I have a good conversation with somebody, which is most of the time, it leaves me inspired. I think from a practical standpoint, the podcast has gotten in the way of mm. writing because it takes up so much time. It's a lot of work. And I think I always want to sort of like pound the table for literary podcasters in particular because the preparation and the labor that goes into interviewing somebody reading their book, which can take 12 yeah. to 20 hours, <laughs> I mean, it can, depending yes. on the book, you know. And depending how many times you read. <laughs> Absorbing the text, you know, doing yeah. all the online research. Like if you're really going to prepare in a, like a broadcast radio sense, which is the way that podcasting has evolved, it was not always the case for me. You know, mm -hmm. I started out, as I described in the book, in a much looser format, but that was how podcasting felt back then. It was very Wild right. West. Right. And I didn't know what I was doing. And as I've often said, I think that when you do it that way, it can be really great and surprising, but that's only when it works. It's like the highs are high and the lows are lower, you know, mm -hmm. the, high, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. It's like, it's very improvisational, like, right, you right. know, whereas nowadays I think it's a little bit of a balancing act between having done your preparation and then knowing when to veer off from it over the course of a conversation, but right, right. it's been a symbiotic relationship between the writing and the, the podcast, which I feel like is a way for me to be of service to the writing community and is a way for me to get a kind of continuing education. I had Otessa Moshveg on my show years ago, and she, as I recall anyway, like was expressing some wonder at why I did the podcast because it was such a distraction from writing. And I think too, maybe I was bemoaning the fact that I was struggling through my novel, which mm -hmm. at the time I was. Mm -hmm. And so she was like, well, why are you doing this? Cause she's like super laser focused. And I mean, hats off, right? She's been super industrious and prolific and has written a bunch of books that people love. But for me personally, I need and want to have an aspect of my creative existence that is service oriented and that is not just about me. Hmm. 
especially since I work from the inside out, you know, I've got a, mm. I get a lot of Brad Listy, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there like, like right. kind of dissecting myself all day long yeah, on the page. Yeah. And so I am also kind of an introvert extrovert hybrid, like who's kind of split mm. down the middle. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm probably a little bit more introverted than extroverted, but I certainly don't have a problem like having conversations with people. And I'm also somebody as my novel testifies to, uh, I'm also somebody who has a lot of conflicted feelings about social media. I don't think it's necessarily healthy. I don't think it's human oftentimes, you know, all these people advertise and I, you know, I have to do it for my show, but again, I can do it for my show. Right. I can't do it comfortably when it's the me show, when it's Brad, you know, like mm. you, I had to do a little bit of that when my book came out just as right. an obligatory thing because yeah. I felt an obligation to my book and to my publisher, but that I did not like. I don't have any problem at all posting on social media when the the star of the show is my guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't feel as gross to me and as mm. uncomfortable. And so- right. I don't know. I think it's a life value thing. Like I think it's important to find your tribe or your community and to serve your community and to make what you do and to make your existence about more than just yourself. And you know, I'm I'm trying I'm making myself sound holy here. There's a plenty of self-interest involved. I know having read up <laughs> that when you are social and when you are being helpful to other people and focusing on them it makes you happier. Like if I'm constantly just in my own thing and worried about advancing my own enterprise, I just start to get suffocated and bogged down. Yeah. And I just frankly love doing the podcast. And I think if you, you know, if you consider the proliferation of podcasts, especially two-way interview shows, I notice it in the celebrity sector. How many, like there's celebrities talking to celebrities, right? But I have, I listen to some of these shows, many of which are quite good. And what I hear consistently is how much celebrities love podcasting because the shackles are off and they're no longer constrained by the rules that they used to have to play by in broadcast television or broadcast mm. radio. They can just kind of go and they can say what they want and they can right, right. talk for an hour and a half if it's yeah. interesting. <laughs> and so I, I think that it's no accident that the medium has become so popular and has exploded the way that it has because it's providing something to people, not only the listeners, but the people who are creating the content. It's, I think it's providing something that we need, which is adult conversation, which is extended dialogue with another human being that yeah. happens outside of the context of two-dimensional social media bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's not Absolutely. curated in the way that like Instagram is right, or Twitter. Right. I mean, you know, it's like- right. There's room for human error and improvised moments and expressions of emotion that are not calculated. And I think people feel that authenticity when it's happening and it feels medicinal for everybody. Yeah. It's a genuine connection and it's a genuine connection between the people having the conversation as well as the person who gets to listen in and feel a part of it. And that's why, you know, I also feel like... It's the same intimacy as radio, except as you say, without the rules and not having to hit the post and all that, all that kind of stuff. Right, right. Which I mean, you know, I think as I said, it's evolving in the direction of maybe more rules, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think ultimately, 
as with most things, it's good for there to be a tension between like no rules at all and maybe some rules to keep things from becoming totally tedious. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Learn learn the rules, break the rules, figure out which rules you want to break or not break. That's right. My question I usually wrap up with, although I feel like I have so many more I could ask you. Feel free. Um, well, okay. So w- was there an unburdening with this book for you? Yes. Absolutely. Like yeah. I have felt better since the day I turned it in. Like markedly better, not perfect. It's not like everything is solved, but I wrestled it to the ground. It was a deep meditation for me. It was therapeutic uh, in its effects. It's not the reason I wrote it necessarily. I wrote it because I felt like I didn't have a choice. I had to sort of look at this closely. And it's the way, writing is the way that I process things as as is the case for pretty much all writers or artists in whatever medium they're working in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the long, grueling nature of it, the painstaking process of writing a book and taking a close and careful look at these difficult experiences and these darker parts of life and my experience, that's the way through, right? The way through is yeah. through. And it's not that I don't still struggle sometimes, but I don't struggle quite as much. And I also think just as a matter of personal pride, I had to figure out this book or it was going yeah, to kill me. If I had right. died, if I had died not having published this book, there would have been some part of me like reaching out from the grave going, no, you know, like it became this kind of like white whale for me. Like I yeah. had to figure out a way to write about this stuff in a manner that I could feel at peace with. And so far anyway, there's none of the mixed feelings that I, (laughs) that's my dog Twiggy, sorry. Hi Twiggy. (laughs) So there's none of the mixed feelings that I have sometimes felt through the years with respect to my debut novel written in my twenties, where I've sort of cringed at the younger version of myself. With this book so far, I haven't felt that though. I haven't really read it that much <laughs> so who knows mm, you know well, but i think yeah. i think part of it is maturity too i think i've kind of come to the understanding that a book or any work of art is a snapshot of who you are at that time and you you'd make it to the best of your ability you send it out into the world it is no longer yours and then it's on to the next and that's kind of the approach that i think i'm going to take from here on out yeah i i can see how the longer the longer one exists and lives as one continues writing it especially when it is self reflective the further back stuff you get more perspective on and more perspective on and so it sort of changes but i can see how like you do have to find the moment where like we're cutting it off this is what it is and you've now capped it as what it is you've been trying to say this whole time yeah I mean, I think that the be brief and tell them everything is a corrective. It really is. I thought of it as I was writing it. I was like, this is me Mm. fixing my first novel. (laughs) This Mm. is the novel I should have written the first time around, essentially. And they do have some similarities. You know, it's almost like I'm getting a do-over, which I think writers sometimes do. But the good news is I don't think I'll ever have to write this story again. I got it out of me to the best of my ability. Yeah. And it, yeah. So the answer is it definitely delivered some kind of sense of true reckoning and a little bit more peace, you know, a Mm -hmm. sense of peace with it. And 
it's not, I think, a process dissimilar to talk therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's just sitting with your thoughts and feelings and taking a close look at them and working it through. And it's mm-hmm. not always comfortable, mm-hmm. but, but having to communicate all of that for a reader requires of you that you really go deeply into it. I don't see how you could possibly make it an enjoyable reading experience for somebody if you don't. Exactly. <laughs> you know, all the failed iterations of this book were the product of me maybe not going deeply into it enough, or maybe not, might just be a, a function of not having had enough time to process. Like sometimes when you're writing about grief or trauma or difficult stuff, the reason it doesn't work is because you don't have the perspective or the hard won wisdom yet, you know, mm-hmm. about the experience itself to be able to write about it well. And so you write versions that don't work for a couple of years until maybe you get there and then suddenly you figure it out. Yeah, I think that's what I mean by that. Like you keep living life and something keeps happening underneath the surface until you do get to the point that it's like, whoosh. Yeah. And at least that much is there. What was most daring for you about this book? I suppose like writing about medical stuff. I mean, I think this is where some fictionalization comes in. You leave certain things out. You put certain things in. You know, I had a friend ask me like, what about implicating your family in a novel and the health situation that your child might be facing? And Mm -hmm. here's what I said. (laughs) I said, yeah, I worried about that. But ultimately I realized that we're all going to die and it doesn't matter. And I don't mean to sound cold or fatalistic, but that is really how I sort of think about it. And then coupled with that, I think I considered my intention. I wasn't trying to sensationalize or exploit in some unsavory way the difficult stuff, nor was I centering people in my family. The central character, the one who goes through the ringer the most by far is me. (laughs) And so I think that choice is important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've just, as a human being and as a creative person, trying to reckon with the stuff of my life as best I could. And it was tough. And I wasn't trying to harm anybody. I don't think I honestly don't think going forward, and I could be wrong, so knock on wood, you know, I don't think anybody yeah. in my family is going to have a huge problem with it. My wife hasn't had a problem with it. Yeah, Friends of mine haven't had a problem with it. And if they have, they've kept it to themselves. I'd like to believe people give, give space to artists to do this stuff. I, I certainly do. I've never held anything against, I mean, I guess no one's ever written a book about me, but there's still time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I yeah, I, I agree and I think writing about one's child is is tough, but I think you do it absolutely beautifully and and um and real. You know, I do think that those deepest considerations of what is real and what we're going through is is what connects and what draws us to one another and what helps each other it going back to that service thing i mean i think that was beautiful what you said about your podcast being a service i i haven't thought of mine that way at all i 
<laughs> look at mine as um, me trying to get my writing done. Um, but I think the book is a service. I think the book is a tremendous service to anyone going through something difficult. And uh, and it's, yeah, we all have a limited amount of time to try and figure out what we got to figure out. And I'm for like, let's get to it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think like, look, you read a novel by somebody and the novel is more heavily fictionalized than say mine. It's not autofiction. And in the, in the novel, there is a parent and a child. And you know, from having read the bio of the author or whatever, or having looked at their Instagram, yeah. <laughs> that they are a parent. Yes. It becomes very easy for anybody of even mild sophistication to infer that the author has fictionalized a parent-child relationship based on the relationship that they themselves have with their own child or children. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of layers. Yeah, That's really all that it is. And for me personally, as a creator, but also often, though not always, but often as a reader, I respond most to art with the fewest layers. Because mm. it's like, what? who are you fooling? Like, who do you think you're fooling? <laughs> like, yeah. we know, yeah. you know, but everybody's got to do it their own way. And sometimes when it's beautifully rendered, somebody could have like a super layered work of fiction that I totally buy into and I'm along for the ride. So mm-hmm. I don't want to make hard, fast rules. I just think that like, there is something I really deeply appreciate about people who work really close to the bone and who risk that stuff on the page. It's more emotional for me as a reader where I'm like, okay, this person's really talking to me and they are laying it down and that's hard to do. But it's also, I think maybe for me anyway, a more powerful like alleviator of loneliness. It's like a more direct bridge between consciousnesses. You know what I'm saying? Mm. It's like the stuff that, that books do, that fiction does and literature does that no other artistic form can quite do, which is get inside the consciousness of another human being. And so when somebody's working in a mode that's really direct and there's really not much of a membrane between their own lived experience and memory and what's on the page, when it's really palpably alive in that sense, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Is there anything else you want to say? I mean, I suppose what I would say to people listening who might be working on something creative or otherwise, but especially somebody who might be working on a book or struggling with a creative project or feeling like it's not going to come together, feeling a sense of like desolation and despair about it is to stick with it. Maybe that would like end on a hopeful note, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, These things have a life cycle unto themselves and if you stick with it in good faith, eventually it will emerge. Uh, so I guess like I am emblematic of that. This book is emblematic of that. Plenty of the conversations I've had with authors on my podcast attest to this as well. I just talked to Madeline Lucas recently. She's got a great new novel out called Thirst for Salt. Took her a decade. I talked to Vivi Ganeshananthan, who wrote a novel called Brotherless Night, which is fabulous took her 18 years i want to say wow and so i think sometimes the length of time that it can take for a creative project to come to fruition can be discouraging it can make us feel naturally that we're failing but 
I think a more generous way to look at it is that these things all have a life cycle unto themselves. And if you think about it, a ficus tree grows very quickly mm-hmm. compared to an olive tree, which takes forever to grow. Right. If you stand next to the olive tree and you shout at it to hurry up, mm-hmm. it's not going to make any difference. Nothing's going to happen. So some books, yeah. if we're going to continue along this line, are olive trees. Some books are ficus trees. Yeah. Some artists... They plant ficus trees, you know, like the Stephen Kings of the world. They, they write like two books a year, whatever yeah, it is. But just right. because you're an olive tree doesn't mean you're failing. It just requires maybe some more patience. And I, I guess I would just encourage people to maybe think of it that way, especially if they've been beating themselves up or feeling distraught. Those are beautiful words of advice because, yeah. <laughs> I I am aware of some people <laughs> who yell at the yell at the olive tree and say what and and yeah sit back breathe just do your work every day yeah, do your do work. The work show up work yeah. hard don't yeah. bullshit yourself you know do yeah. the work day after day in good faith pay attention to what's working and what's not working be willing to adjust don't dig in and become inflexible because you have some fixed idea of what exactly it should be. But at the same time, have, I think, some core principles about what you're after, some core themes that you're interested in, or some core story that you're trying to tell. And then trust that you're going to know when you have it right. And I think also something that I did on this book, which I maybe didn't do on my first book, was that I really sought feedback you know, I went through an editorial process before I went mm. through an editorial process. Yeah. And I got perspective from some trusted readers that made a, an impact on the edit, you know, on the edit and on the on the book and what became it, the finished product. So, you know, you just have to go through every pace and don't cut corners. Mm-hmm. But also don't be too hard on yourself if it's taking a while. These things often do. It's not that ab- abnormal for a book to take many years. Well, congratulations again. I hope it finds many other readers. It's honestly. not my problem anymore. It's yeah. not, now it's your problem. So enjoy, everybody. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate you reading the book and taking the time to talk with me. This has been really fun. Well, shouting at the olive tree. What an image. And how perfect is that? It would be a great title for a writing book. Shouting at the olive tree will not make it grow faster. But, you know, as he said, show up, do the work, and accept our pace for what it is. And I, for one, very much identify with the slow-paced soul. Two completely unexpected things came out of this conversation for me, that his book is about creation. That was interesting. Of course, fatherhood was a theme and writing is a theme and coming to his podcast is a theme. So yeah, I guess I could have noticed that. I was, I think, looking for other things. 
But the other thing that he spoke of, service, wow, yes, so important. And that's something I probably need to think about more. I often am just so enmeshed in my own journey, talking to who I think I need to talk to next and trying to figure myself out through these conversations. So thank you, Brad Listy. There is a link to his book, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, in the show notes. I highly recommend it, even if it is a novel. Ha, ha, ha. Of course, I still don't know exactly what parts are made up or embellished or veiled, but I do feel as if I got to know him greatly by reading it, and he did seem to fess up to a lot of it, so that was very interesting. Also, a huge thanks to Jody Sperling, the writer and podcaster who first suggested that I check out Brad's podcast and encouraged me to have this conversation. So thank you, Jody. Good call. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will briefly note, Jody invited me to guest host his podcast, TRBM. I got to interview him about his new book, called The Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi, a completely different genre from my usual memoir little corner of the world. It is a speculative thriller sort of detective novel, so you may want to check that out as well. I will put links in the show notes for those things too. In addition to this podcast, I put out a monthly newsletter about topics inspired from the podcast. It is called Hit Pause. If you would like to sign up for it, you can do that at my website, michellerado.com. Thanks as always to my husband, Phil Rado, for all of his music really, and especially the songs that I get to use here for this podcast. And because it was a theme that Brad Listy brought up at the end, I think we will go out today with Phil's song called Slow. Congratulations to you for making it all the way to the end, and as always, for daring to listen. I live on the coast, but I can't see the ocean. I keep to myself most of the time. try when I can to slow it all down slow like a starfish and slow like the cedar tree grows and I try not to worry about the answers I may have got wrong I live in a house with a big empty barn used to hold cows but not for a while now I sing some of my songs there and try to slow myself down Slow like a fool 
flow like forgiveness I try to fill in the blanks where it's clear Something needs to go and A long time goes quickly It's not really that long at all it doesn't take much to realize No matter how fast we run We still run out of time and I inhabit this rock Surrounded by matter I keep to myself most of the time I watch all the stars that are moving around Slow like a candle Slow like the darkness And I realize it's something at least To know what I can't understand Long time goes quickly It's not really that long at all It doesn't take much to realize No matter how fast we run We still run out of time 